Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you very much, ladies. It's beautiful. Really appreciate your efforts and, and the blessing that you bring to us. Really appreciate that. Well, as Pastor Murray said, we are uh, continuing in the book of Hebrews. This is a, a long study. I think when, when we first uh, had the idea, I say the inspiration to study this book, it was when we were leading up to the Feast of Passover. And we just felt grounding ourselves in the book of Hebrews would, would prepare our minds for the Passover. And I really sincerely thought we would finish the book by Passover. And here we are now coming up to the fall holidays, and we're still not finished. But what's interesting is where we have landed now, uh, here with Hebrews 9, is covering atonement. And we are now going into the Feast of Atonement, as was mentioned in the opening prayer. And so I think it's very helpful that, uh, I think it's God-ordained, that we study Hebrews 9 and 10 as we prepare our minds now to observe the Passover. I, I love the book of Hebrews. I think it is, in some ways, a very difficult book. Um, But I love it because this is true religion. This is true religion. And I think with the the epistles that the apostle wrote to the Gentile Christians, it's possible for Greek philosophy to creep in there and and for us to twist those scriptures and make them mean something that they just don't mean. Here with Hebrews, we're grounded. This is Hebrews speaking to Hebrews. First covenant, we're building the new covenant on the the first. And and the, the argument structure that we've seen through Hebrews is from the lesser to the greater. So the entire book is basically speaking to these Hebrew brethren who are on the verge of defecting, going back to Judaism and defecting from Christ. And so the argument that the apostle is taking here is what you have is great. It is. But Christ is greater. So, you know, in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. And that was great. They were great. They did a great job. But now, God is speaking to us through his son. You know, the angels brought the message in the past. Now we're getting it directly from his son. Moses was great. Christ is greater. The rest that Joshua promised Israel was great. The rest that Christ promises is greater. Uh, the The Levitical priesthood was a great priesthood. Christ's priesthood is greater. The Aaronic priesthood was a great priesthood. Christ's great uh, priesthood is greater. And now we're coming to the covenant and the tabernacle. We're going to see how great the covenant and the first tabernacle were. Christ's covenant is greater. And Christ's tabernacle is greater. So that's how we come into the book of Hebrews. And we're going to hopefully cover today Hebrews 9 and 10. And then that will leave uh, leave for us 11, 12, and 13. And it's, it's a shame that we can't cover Hebrews 11 today. Uh, but what occurs to me or dawns on me is how much we take Scripture out of context. So everybody is familiar with Hebrews 11. If I say Hebrews 11, everybody knows this is the, the hall of faith. This is the faith chapter. And so often we just read Hebrews 11 as if it just hangs in midair by itself. It doesn't. It's, it's part of the argumentation that he's leading up to. And these are Christians that are on the verge of defecting. And Hebrews 11 is all about, look at the examples of people who were cut in half 
and didn't defect. Where do you think you're going? So we're leading up into Hebrews 11. We won't cover it today. We'll cover 9 and 10. But begin with me, please, brethren, in Hebrews 9 and verse 1. Hebrews 9 and verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary or sanctuary on earth. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So all of this was set up. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So this is the way the tabernacle was set up. At first you went in, and there was the, the, the lampstand and the table and the showbread, and that's called the sanctuary. And then after the second veil was the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So there was something to say about the mercy seat, but the apostle couldn't speak about that right now. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So these are the Levites, the Levitical priests, They would go into the first tabernacle to accomplish the service of God. But into the second, that is the holiest of all, went the high priest. This is a descendant of Aaron. And only the high priest would go into the holiest of all. And he would do that alone. Sorry, let me go back to verse 7. But into the second went the high priest alone. Once. Every year. So in this holiest, holiest of all, only one person could go in there. And that was the high priest. And he would go in there alone. Nobody else could go in there with him. And he could only go in there once a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement, which we'll be celebrating in seven days. But into the second when the high priest alone once every year and not without blood. So he had to take blood with him, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made obvious, was not yet made manifest. It wasn't fully accessible. Only one person could go there. He could only go there once a year, and he couldn't go there without blood. He had to have blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people. So the Holy Spirit was basically showing God is not accessible. He is not accessible, except for this very precise way by only one person once a year. The the Holy Spirit, verse 8, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So as long as we have the first tabernacle, we don't have access to the holiest of holies. Which was a figure, this tabernacle was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, 
that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So we had the Levites and we had the the Aaronic priest, the high priest, going in and doing this service. But the Holy Spirit was showing us by all of this that the holiest holy was not accessible. It was not yet made manifest as long as this tabernacle standing because we have this ritual where we're, we're kept at arm's length. And the gifts and sacrifices that are being offered, even though this is a very um, splendid ceremony, these gifts and sacrifices that are being offered, they're weak. The person who's actually doing the offering, it doesn't make them perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So as much as they go through this whole ceremonial process, when they're done, their conscience is not clear. Which stood... Only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So they have to go through this ritual until Christ comes. And as long as Christ has not yet come and we're still operating under the first covenant, they have to go through all of this ritual. But Christ, verse 11 being come a high priest of good things to come. So we saw that, how he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's become a high priest of what? Of good things to come. There are some good things coming, and Christ is a high priest of these things that are about to appear. And he's a high priest of good things to come by a greater And more perfect tabernacle. So this is the argumentation structure in Hebrews. What we have is great. Christ is greater. What Christ offers is greater. So you're sort of in this in-between where you're, you're coming out of the old covenant. You've been offered the new. And you want to turn your back on the new and go back to the old. Well, the new is greater. And so Christ has become a high priest of some good things to come. I'm surprised it doesn't say here... Um, of which we cannot now speak particularly, because there's a lot there, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. So so now there's another tabernacle that is not made with hands. Neither, verse 12, by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. So there's some tabernacle which is not made with hands, which is greater than the tabernacle that's here on earth. And these priests would go into the holy of holies, or the, the one, one priest, high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, would go into the holy of holies. But he couldn't go there without blood. He had to go in there with blood for his own errors and for the errors of the people. But Christ is a high priest of the good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. And then he goes into the Holy of Holies, neither by the blood of goats and calves, verse 12, but with his own blood or by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. In other words, he he could not come before the presence of God without blood, same way the high priest did it. But this time he's coming into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, with his own blood. 
and he entered in once. So they were coming every year. So they would come in, they would do the presentation, they would do the sacrifice, it would be accepted, and then they'd be back again the next year. Here, he entered in once. Verse 12, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So the high priest would make the sacrifice for himself and then for the sins of the people, and they would be accepted. Here, Christ is making the offer or the offering, his own blood, for us. And with that blood, he has redeemed us. So we have now been redeemed with this purchase price the blood of Christ. Verse 13. And again, it's always this argument of the lesser to the greater. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, again, that argumentation from the lesser to the greater, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. So he is the perfect sacrifice. He offered himself without spot. So if the, verse 13, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall his blood purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So that's the effectual power now of God of Christ's blood, that it's going to purify us, cleanse our conscience, so that we can now serve the living God with a clear conscience. Whereas the, the, the other blood, it would, it would cleanse them, but it didn't cleanse their conscience to serve the living God. Verse 15. And for this cause, this is why, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death, and so this is interesting now, we're talking about the covenant. He starts off in verse 1 talking about the first covenant. And now he switches to talk about the testament. To say basically, this is a will. And and let's see what, what he means when he says testament. For this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So there's an inheritance here. We talked about Prince Harry earlier today, where at 30, he receives his inheritance. But he couldn't receive the inheritance if Princess Diana was still alive. The inheritance does not come into effect, or the will does not come into effect, until the person who wrote the will dies. And so here we have a, an Old Testament that's in effect, but it's not that, that Christ is, is married to Israel, but that marriage is bound until death. Once that death is there, it's released. And there's a will. If there's an inheritance, until the testator dies, we cannot inherit what's in the, what's in the will. But here it's saying, that they, we which are called can now receive the promise of eternal inheritance because of the death of the testator. Verse 16. For where a testament is, 
there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. So a will is a wonderful thing, but it means nothing as long as the testator is alive. Once the testator dies, the will comes into full effect. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Whereupon neither the first testament, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, so the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it was dedicated with blood. He had spoken the priest, every precept to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. So they were bound by this covenant. Verse 20, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So that first covenant, that first agreement required blood. And now he's saying this second agreement also requires blood. But this is the blood of Christ. And if the blood of bulls and goats has an effect, think of how much greater the effect of the blood of Christ is. And so the old covenant is through the shedding of blood. The new covenant is also through the shedding of blood. So verse 22, almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. So in other words, this is a divine ordinance. So it was necessary in the first covenant that there be purifying with blood because this is the divine ordinance. It was therefore necessary that the patterns, that's the first covenant, the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So whatever is done with the earthly sacrifice, the heavenly sacrifices have to be better. Is that, is that not logical? Again, he's trying to show them that what Christ is offering is greater than the first covenant. Verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. So everything that you've been doing under the old covenant it's just pointing to the true. It's a shadow. It's a figure. It's, a, it's symbolic. So everything that you have is symbolic of what's really happening in heaven. So Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year by himself to present blood to get the remission of sins for the people. All of that was just a figure of, of the, the reality of Christ going into the Holy of Holies to present his own blood. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's not presenting it for himself. He doesn't need it. He's presenting it for us in the Holy of Holies. 
And that's what we'll be celebrating in just a week's time. Verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So his sacrifice is so glorious, it's so profound, he just needs to do it once. And so instead of coming at the beginning and having to sacrifice himself all the time for everybody, he just comes at the end of time and does it once. And this will cover the sins of all. Verse 27. And it is, and as it is appointed unto men once to die. So the research has been done. The statistics have been gathered. And we've, we've come to the conclusion that the mortality rate for mankind is 100%. Everybody dies. Everybody. And that's just the way it is. And so here he says, it has been appointed unto all of us. We don't know what age. Some of us die young. Some of us die old. Some die stillborn. They're not even born. It's appointed to every human being to die. But after this, the judgment. So there is a day of judgment. There is a resurrection when there will be judgment. So in the same way, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So we all die, and then the judgment. He died so that he can come and render judgment. And if we're looking for him, then we're going to be included in salvation. And as it is appointed, the same way it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, in that same way, Christ died. He once offered to bear the sins of all. And unto them, the, the, those, those of us who are looking for him, he will appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And that's the judgment, the positive judgment. Now we come into chapter 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. So we know that he's the high priest of good things to come. And the law has a shadow of good things to come. So the sun is shining, and you see the shadow. And if you follow the shadow, it will take you to the real thing. So all of these things that were given in the old covenant, they're a shadow. If we follow them, they'll take us to the real thing. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, so they're glorious. The old covenant was fantastic, is amazing. But you know what? 
They had to do this every single year, over and over and over again. So there's no comparison to what they did on the, under the old covenant with what, what we now do under the new. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. So I, I love the old covenant as much as you do. But did you notice they just keep repeating it over and over and over again? Therefore, that's not to perfection. So, so what are you going back to? You're going to leave Christ and go back to that? Verse 2. If these, from verse 1, if these sacrifices that they offer every year did make the comers perfect, verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? If, if, it, if it actually worked, wouldn't they then just stop? Because that the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. So if the blood of these goats and bulls and all that whole ceremony worked, we should all have a clear conscience, no need to do it again. Done it once, it's done. But no, every single year we wait for the high priest to go in and we hope he comes out. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every single year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So we're human beings. It's not possible that the blood of animals can take away our sins. Verse 5. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you would not, or you would not have, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have had no pleasure. So again, this is a Hebrew speaking to Hebrews, and as they're listening to this, they know exactly what he's talking about. We have no clue, right? We don't, we, we don't have that grounding that they would have. So he says, when Christ comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering, which they're taking, they're glorifying in the sacrifices and offerings. They're wanting to go back to that. But when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering, you don't want that, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have had no pleasure. So where is this coming from? So this is coming from the scriptures, which they all know. He just has, it's just a trigger. They know exactly what he's talking about. We need to check it out. So let's go to Psalm 40 to see what is it he's talking about. Psalm 40. And verse 1, and, and they would realize now that this whole psalm is Christ speaking. So when they were reading this scripture, they don't, is it King David? They don't know who he's speaking about. Now that the apostle is putting it in context, they realize this whole psalm is Christ. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. 
He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. So they want to return to Judaism. And what this psalm is showing us is the Jews were the enemies of Christ. And that's what they're, that's what they're glorying in. That's what they want to return to. Verse 3. And he has put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that makes the Lord his trust. Again, this is the whole issue with the Hebrews. They're, they're making the old covenant their trust. But blessed is the man that makes the Lord his trust and respects not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. And that's exactly what they were doing, ready to turn aside to lies. So, so the apostle doesn't have to go through all of this. They know exactly what he's saying. Verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto you. If I would declare and speak of them, there are, there, they are more than can be numbered. Then verse 6. This is to the Jewish mind. They're like, wow, this is right here in the scriptures. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire. My ears have opened, my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yes, your law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, you know. And they knew. I have not hid your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Withhold not your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have come past me about. My iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and confounded. Those, those, that Judaism that you're going back to, let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Let them be desolate for a reward of their shame that say unto me, Aha, aha, let all those that seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. So back to Hebrews 10. Where they are considering how great the sacrifices are of the old covenant. And the apostle here in verse 5 says, When he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you do not want but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. 
So that's what they want to go back to. They want to go to the temple. They want to have their ritual, do their sacrifices, do their burnt offerings. And the scripture tells them, God has no pleasure in that. That's not what God is after. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the scriptures. It is written of me to do your will, O God. So Christ is the one doing the will of God. He's the one they should be following. Verse 8. Above when he said, sacrifice and and burnt offerings, and offering for sin you do not want, neither do you have pleasure in them, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So that's what the psalm said when he said, in verse 5, Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you don't want, but a body you have prepared for me. And now we see in verse 9, he says, Lo, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This, this is the offering that really matters. This perfect life, this sinless life that offers his body, sheds his blood for us once. And it's not the, it's not the, the burnt offerings that are continually offered. They, they mean nothing compared to Christ's sacrifice. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And we talked about that earlier, that Christ sat down. So he made the sacrifice, and then he sat down. Whereas the Levitical priest, they were standing up all the time, sweating, killing different sacrifices, constantly working. The work was never done. Here, Christ made one sacrifice, and then he sat down. That sacrifice is good forever. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And yeah, he has enemies, and so we have to decide, are we following Christ, or are we following his enemies? For by one offering, verse 14, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. So we've got the the bull and the goats and every year constantly sacrificing, every day constantly sacrificing. Here we have Christ, one offering, and he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us, For after that, he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. So this is the new covenant. I will put my laws into their hearts. And we saw that we were in Jeremiah earlier, Jeremiah 33. This is the new covenant, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now, Where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. 
So that's it. One offering and it's the remission is done. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So remember, the holiest was not made manifest before. Once a year, the only person that could enter the holiest of all was the high priest. And he could only go in there alone, and he could only go in there with blood for himself and for the people. So that the, the access to God was not uh, fully available. Now, he's saying, I'm going to have a new covenant. I'm going to write my laws into their hearts and into their minds. And I will accept this offering of Christ so that there's no more offering for sin. That's it. And then now in verse 19, now, brethren, have boldness. So it's not just to enter, it's not that we can just enter the holiest of all. We can actually enter it with boldness. So if you're the high priest, I would imagine they kind of enter it a little bit timid because they don't know if they're coming out. So they're very, very careful, make sure they're doing everything perfectly. And, you know, I understand they put bells on themselves. And so I'm going in and say, Jan, you listen for me, right? If anything goes wrong, you pull me out. I don't know. Am I going to live? I'm going into the holiest of all. Now, under this new covenant, we're saying, come into the holiest of holies with boldness. You, we can now be bold. So we have access now to God. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest. How? By the blood of Jesus. So we're coming in now by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So the same way that the high priest would be able to draw near once a year, we can now draw near any time by the blood of Christ. But let us do that with a true heart, not a hypocritical heart, not a heart that's hedging our bets, a heart that is fully engaged in the covenant with Christ. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. This is where the boldness comes from. We have the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure waters, pure water. So, so we can have a clear conscience. The blood of Christ is that effectual. Bulls and goats, they would have to do this every year, and it never cleared their conscience. They were constantly aware of sin. Now through Christ and his blood, we can have a clear conscience, and we can go into the holiest of holy with, with boldness and full assurance of faith. Verse 23. Let us, us Hebrews, true believers, new covenant brethren, let us, let's do this. Let's hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Don't waver. Yes, the bad guys are coming. Don't waver. Don't waver. Hold on. Why? For he is faithful that promised. When God enter, If there's one thing we learn in the scriptures, God is faithful. When he makes a promise, there's no way that he will break his promise. So here we're entering into a covenant with God, a new covenant, and let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? For he's faithful that promised. 
And let's do this. Let us, true believers, new covenant community, let's consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Works matter. Let's encourage each other to do good works because they matter. So us true believers, rather than waver, rather than turn our back on Christ, let's come into the holiest of holies with boldness through the blood of Christ. Let's have the full assurance of faith because we know he's faithful. And then let's consider one another and encourage one another to good works. Verse 25. Again, another scripture that's taken out of context. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So this is not saying, make sure you go to Sabbath services every week. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about brethren forsaking the covenant community and going backwards. Don't do that. Stay in the community. That includes Sabbath services, but it's more than that. It's, it's an actual relationship and assembling together weekly services, yes, but it's a community. Don't forsake the community. As the manner of some is. We have had some in the covenant community, true believers, and they've turned their back on Christ. Let's not do that. Instead, let's consider each other and let's provoke each other to good works, to love and to good works. Let's make sure that nobody fails. The, the message to the Philippians, work out your salvation together. Consider one another. Don't, don't be so individually minded that all you care about is yourself. As long as I make it, hey, I'm all right. I'm good. I, you know, I'm so righteous. I've got good character. I know, I, know, I know that I know that I know that I know that I'll be in the kingdom. And good luck to you. I hope you make it too. No, I'm committed to all of us. If I make it in the kingdom and you don't, what joy is that? As Paul said, I, I wish I could give up my salvation so that my brethren could be saved. That's the kind of mindset we have to have. We have to think as a community. H- how do we help each other be successful? What impact does my behavior have on you? What impact does my example have on you? Let me consider it. And see if I can set an example that encourages you to good works. Rather than say, I just do what I do and who cares? So what if you see what I do and that that discourages you and causes you to sin as well? No. We're all in this together and our actions affect each other. So let's consider one another and, and how we can provoke one another to love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembly. Don't forsake the assembly. As the manner of some is. There are true believers that are forsaking the assembly. Rather, exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So much the more. We we live in such an individualistic society. It is amazing. It's bizarre. But somehow, we've, we've gotten to this place where it's all about me. It's all about me. Well, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says it's all about you. There's, there is no such thing. Uh, let me say this. Let me, let me go on record to say this. There is no such thing as an independent Christian. It is a bizarre contradiction of terms. It is bizarre. If you think that it's just you and Christ and you can just walk alone, there's no such thing. 
There is no such thing. God is not interested. No thanks. No thanks. No thanks. Christianity is about community. Christianity is about relationship. God is looking for people who will excel in relating to him and relating to his people. You love me, but you don't care about your brother? I don't think so. Show me how you excel in the assembly. That's what I'm interested in. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, shame. Rather, do the opposite. Exhort one another. Be, be so committed to the community and constantly be thinking about how we can exhort one another to love and good works. And, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This was written 2,000 years ago. I would say we're much closer to the day today than they were then. And so this is the mindset that we need to bring to the community. How do we exhort one another? Time is running out. How can I make sure that you have the greatest reward possible? How can you make sure that I have the greatest reward possible? You know, brethren, I'll say this. As a pastor, and I'm sure Pastor Murray would agree with me, this is a role that can be very discouraging. It can be very discouraging. I'm sure there's not a pastor that hasn't said, why am I doing this? What's the point? And that discouragement, brethren, comes from the brethren. It is the brethren that discourage pastors. And I have to say, I just, as a pastor, I just love it here. I wish I could be here every single week. This is such a positive, encouraging community. It's beautiful. This, this is what it's all about. This, this is what makes me, and I'm sure Pastor Murray would say the same, what we do matters. This matters. We're going somewhere. But it's not that everywhere. It's not that everywhere. When brethren fight and bicker with each other, it's like as a par- if any of you are parents and you see your children fighting, is that a happy day? That, that's discouraging. So, you know, I think there's a scripture that says, um, obey those that have the rule over you. And, 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 and honor them and, and don't, don't have them serve you with grief because that's not to your profit. It's not profitable for you if the elders over you are, are, are feeling grief and discouragement. And I, and I know you brethren get that. That's a message that we just need to get out to all the congregations. You can discourage your pastor. We're, 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 we're human too. And if we're discouraged, that's not good for the body. Because we have a role in the body, and, and, and the role in the body is to make the body healthy. But if we're discouraged, then the body's not going to be as healthy as it could. And I'm, I'm preaching to the, the converted here, the choir, but I just want to say that. That uh, let's encourage, as we go to the feast, let's encourage brethren to think like this. Put your communal hat on. There is no such thing as an independent Christian. It doesn't exist. Even when Paul was cut off from everybody and he's in prison, he didn't say, it's just me and you, Lord. He got busy writing and still in relationship with everybody. Christianity is about relationship. So thank you, brethren. Thank you. This is, I, I, just, I love it here. I think we, we really are doing something here. And, and what we do matters because it's an example and other brethren can look and say, we should be like that. So, so we just have to keep pushing, keep striving, and building 
let God do what he's doing here. Exhort one another. Do that. Let's exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Verse 26, another verse that's taken out of context. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth. So, so we've received the knowledge of the truth, we've accepted the knowledge of the truth, and then we're sinning willfully. What he's talking about, and, and, and I guess you know, by extension, it could be any sin. But what he's talking about is if you turn your back on Christ, which is the threat. Yes, persecution is coming. And I know what you're, what you're thinking. You want to turn your back on Christ. If you turn your back on Christ after you've received the knowledge of the truth, that's what this whole book is about, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else we can do for you. And this again ties into what we were talking about earlier, about once saved, always saved. There's no such thing in the scripture. There's no such thing in the scripture. There are conditions. And, and, and I was saying to Brother Ray earlier, God will never take our free will away from us. God doesn't want robots. He could easily do that. Once you're converted, once you accept Christ, we just do a lobotomy, and we take this area of the brain that has free will, we take it out. And then you kind of just walk around and do whatever God says. God's not interested in that. He wants a relationship. He wants you to exercise your free will. And so, yes, he's the good shepherd, and he's stronger than all, and no one can pluck you out of his hands except for you. You can turn your back on God. And that's what this is saying. If you turn your back on God willfully, after you've received the knowledge of the truth, there's nothing left. Let's look at, uh, go back to Hebrews 6. <clears throat> Hebrews 6. And we'll just cut in. We, we covered Hebrews 6 already. But just a reminder, Hebrews 6, verse 4, which ties into Hebrews 10. Hebrews 6, verse 4. For it is impossible. Oh, you know, God can do everything. No, God cannot do everything. The God of Israel cannot do everything. Here's something that's impossible. We know it's impossible for God to lie. So this, this kind of Greek notion that you know, God is infinite. God can do everything. That's not the God of Israel. The God of Israel is not infinite. He's eternal, but he's not infinite. Infinite means there's no boundaries. God has boundaries. God is God and Satan is Satan, and Satan is not God. There are things we say God is not. Infinite, you can't say anything is not with infinite. And I hear Christians say God is infinite. They don't get that from the Bible. I hear Christians say nothing is impossible to God. They don't get that from the Bible. The God of Israel, there are some things that are impossible. It's impossible for the God of Israel to lie. And here's another one. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And this word, if it should be and. And they have fallen away to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So these Hebrews, he's telling them, if you turn your, after you've experienced the Holy Spirit, you're going, to turn your, you're going to exercise your free will and turn your back on Christ. There's nothing we can do. That, that was the sacrifice. This, this is the sacrifice. 
This is the forever sacrifice. This is the sacrifice that covers all sins of all men. Unless you turn your back on it. If you turn your back on this, there is nothing else. So exercise your free will, but I'll caution you. Don't turn your back on the sacrifice of Christ. There's nothing else we can offer you. It's, it's now impossible for us to renew you. And the, the tense in, these, um, in this passage is, I believe, is the ARS test, tense, which means it's something that happened in the past, and it keeps on happening. So it, it happened in the past, and it's still happening. So for those people who they were enlightened, they've, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they were partakers of the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the word of God, they've tasted the powers of the world to come, and they have fallen away, and they remain falling away. They keep their back turned on Christ. It's impossible to renew them. Back to Hebrews 10. So, brethren, Hebrews 10:24. consider the community. Consider how we can uh, provoke one another to love and good works. Don't forsake the assembly. Be a part of the community. Commit to being a part of the community. Make the community part of your identity. I'm not Adrian Davis, self-made man. I stand on my own, and it's just me and God. That's a fiction. That's an illusion. I'm Brother Adrian, part of a Christian community. And, and you are part of my, you're part of my identity. You're part of who I am. Who am I? I'm a brother in a Christian community, and this is my community. This is my identity. If, if you're hurt, I'm hurt. I've got to consider you. In, in everything I do, I'm considering you. Because you're part, we're, we're, we're part of a community. Uh, it, when I talk about Adrian Davis, I know this is nothing. I have no meaning by myself. My meaning is in the community. So don't forsake the assembly, as the manner of some is. But exhort one another, because there is a risk. So exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. So, so what, what verse 25 is saying is this. All of us are vulnerable. All of us are vulnerable. So do what you can to protect me from turning my back on Christ. And I'll do what I can to protect you from turning your back on Christ. Because all of us are vulnerable. Satan is seeking who he can devour. So because all of us are vulnerable, we're going to exhort one another, and so much the more as the finish line is coming. Because we can get right up to the finish line and people can still lose out. So we're constantly working together, like the Philippians, working out our salvation together. Why? Because verse 26, if we sin willfully, if we turn our back on Christ, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there's nothing else. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. Instead, what do we have? Verse 27. A certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. So there is a fiery indignation that's coming down on God's enemies. And if we forsake the assembly, we get included in that category, the enemies of God. Verse 28. He that despised Moses' law, so, so if we were in the old covenant and we despised Moses' law, we died without mercy under two or three witnesses. 
So two or three people would come forward, and they say, I saw Adrian despising the law of Moses. This is what he did. And if two or three witnesses came forward, I would be put to death. That's the old covenant. We're under grace now. We're under the new covenant. So we don't have to worry about this. This is very harsh, old covenant stuff. Okay? Two or three witnesses come forward, I get stoned to death. Verse 29, under the new covenant, of how much sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God. Now we're under new covenant. You thought the old covenant punishment was bad? Guess what will be done to somebody under the new covenant if they despise Christ? You thought the old covenant was harsh. I'm telling you, the new covenant is harsher. Why? Because Moses was great, but Christ is greater. New covenant, we can do whatever we like. Oh, yeah? Oh, really? That's not what Hebrews says. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose you, shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God. You're a new covenant believer. You're in the community. And you forsake the assembly. And you trod the Son of God underfoot. And you've counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. He was sanctified in the blood. You've counted the blood an unholy thing. And you have done despite unto the spirit of grace. Here's grace. Here's grace. Once saved, always saved. And you're going to go and pollute and despise the blood of Christ. You thought the old covenant was harsh and we're... we're New covenant Christians now. It's all grace. Oh, yes, it is grace. And of how much sore punishment will you be subjected to? Counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. He was sanctified. He was in the community. Counted it an unholy thing and has done despite unto the spirit of grace. For we know him. We know him that has said, Vengeance belongs to to me. We know who that is. We know who said that. We know him. We have a relationship with him. We know what God is like. When people say to us, uh, God is not moved one way or the other. Whether you do good or you do bad, doesn't matter to God. They can't tell us that. Why? Because we know him. We know God. And God said, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. The Lord shall judge his people. Judgment is now on the house of God. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If it's once saved, always saved. If once I'm saved, I don't have to worry. Why would it be a fearful? Why why would have any fear at all? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Once you're in this covenant and you turn your back on Christ... You thought the old covenant was harsh. You be careful under the new covenant. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, so you've been illuminated, you've received the Holy Spirit, you're part of the community. Remember the former days. You endured a great fight of afflictions. So they've been through something before. And he's reminding them, remember the persecution you went through before? You got through that successfully. So recall that. Remember that. You've been through this before. Partly, while you were made a gazing stock, both by the reproaches and afflictions, 
and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. So some of them were subjected to it directly. Uh, Some of it, it was our companions that went through it. Verse 34. For you had compassion of me and and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. So something happened. They were under persecution. Their goods were taken away from them, and they rejoiced. They got through it. Knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So they were faithful through the first persecution. Verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. They're they're wavering. And he's saying, look, we've been through one of these trials before. Don't waver now. When you went through this the first time and, and your property was taken away from you, you knew you had greater treasure in heaven. Nothing has changed. He's faithful that promised. Let's get through this. Let's get through this together. Don't cast away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. So, so you, have, you have to get through this first. You have to cross the finish line. So let's exhort one another. Let's look after one another all the way to the end because people will drop out of the race before we get to the finish line. Some people will drop out of the race the day before. So let's work as a community. Let's make sure that we have patience because after we've endured, then we'll be saved. After we have done the will of God, works, you might receive the promise. Verse 37. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and he will not tarry. Now the just, another, con- another scripture that's taken out of context. We have to read it in context. The context is the Hebrews are thinking of defecting and turning their back on Christ. Now the just shall live by faith. That's how we live. We live by faith. And that's what enables us to do the works. Grace is the foundation. God blesses us. And through faith, we believe him. We accept his grace. And then we do work. Faith being alone is is dead. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any, I'm telling you, Hebrews, I'm warning you. Covenant community, if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So if you're thinking of reverting back to Judaism, turning your back on Christ, I'm telling you that that is a faithless thing to do, and God will have no pleasure in you. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. We're not of those who are going to lose our salvation. We stay the course. We stay the course. We are not of them that draw back unto perdition. Who are we of? We are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So salvation is by grace through faith. The entire relation, every relationship with God, every covenant is by grace. But we have work to do. And let us consider one another, because any of us can fail. As much as I feel like, whoa, I I just feel like I could never let God down. I, I love God so much. I'm so committed. Oh, yeah? Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So if, there's a, if I think I'm independent, independent Adrian, I'm strong enough by myself, no such thing. I don't have all the gifts. But I have need of all the gifts. 
And so God has given you gifts that will nourish me. And he's given me gifts that will nourish you. And we cannot forsake the assembly. Instead, we exhort one another. And we are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.